Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This podcast contains explicit language. We do this again for the second time. Uh... I was telling my wife coming down, I felt like I was getting married. You know. The familiar baritone voice you just heard belongs to Michael Jordan. It's January 13th, 1999, and he's in a crowded room at the United Center, home of the NBA's Chicago Bulls. I am here to, to announce my retirement from the game of basketball. Uh, it won't be a, another announcement to baseball or anything to that nature. This winter afternoon in Chicago felt like it was really, truly the end. Jordan's first retirement in 1993 had been a hastily organized affair. He was 30 then, coming off of an exhausting third straight championship run. He was also mourning the recent murder of his father, James, and had been dogged by rumors about his gambling habit. That 1993 season had been a hellish experience. He'd needed a break to go play baseball and to clear his head. Jordan came back to the Bulls after 15 months off, and he'd win three more championships. He got the last one by nailing a game-winning jumper over Utah's Brian Russell. It was the perfect ending. Jordan's legacy was secure. This second retirement ceremony was different, more polished, more of a Michael Jordan production. He came to the dais with his wife Juanita, NBA commissioner David Stern, and Bulls owner Jerry Reinsdorf. Jordan was now nearly 36, coming off of his second three-peat. This time, he didn't just need some time off. I'm at peace with a lot of those things. I know, uh, you know, from a career standpoint, uh, I've accomplished everything I could as an individual. Uh, And right now I don't have the mental challenges uh, uh, that I've had in the past to to proceed as as, as a basketball player. Jordan sounded certain, but the reporters at the United Center couldn't help prodding. Michael, is there any chance whatsoever that you'll change your mind somewhere down the road and return? No. I never say never, but 95, 99.9%, I'm, um, I'm very secure with my decision. You'll notice that Jordan didn't say 100%. The reporters noticed too. Michael, one last time for the record, why do you have to walk out of here with that 1% in your pocket? Because it's my 1% and not yours. <laughs> That's why. This time, Michael Jordan stayed away for two full seasons. There's front page news tonight from sports. To absolutely no one's surprise, he's back again. Can he put the air back into his game at the advanced basketball age of 38? Jordan didn't care about that perfect ending. He was going to write a new one for a new team in a new city. Jordan's years as a shooting guard for the Washington Wizards have mostly vanished from our collective memory. ESPN's 10-hour documentary, The Last Dance, ends with his sixth and final championship with the Bulls, as if his tenure with the Wizards never happened. That ESPN series was about a champion, one who pushed, and sometimes punched, his teammates to victory. In that story, Jordan's commitment and competitiveness were the not-so-secret ingredient to his and their success. But the story of Jordan post-Chicago isn't about winning. It isn't a fairy tale with a storybook ending. 
In Washington, Jordan's strengths became weaknesses. And as a wizard, the ultimate champion turned his back on his teammates. And they turned their backs on him. How did Michael Jordan end up in Washington, D.C.? Why couldn't he make the Wizards into winners? And what does the final chapter of Jordan's career reveal about him as a player and a person? My name is Joel Anderson. This is a special episode of Hang Up and Listen. The last, last dance. Michael Jordan goes to Washington. Washington's NBA franchise wasn't always a joke. They actually won a championship in 1978, back when they were known as the Washington Bullets. And the celebration can begin in Washington. Dick Mata and Bernie Bickerstaff are embracing over there as the Washington Bullets jubilantly file off the floor and the crowd here in Seattle... The owner of the team was Abe Poland. He'd bought a stake in the then Baltimore Bullets in 1964, then moved them to the D.C. suburbs a decade later. That championship the Bullets won in 1978 was a big deal in Washington. The first title for one of the city's pro franchises in 36 years. Abe Poland died in 2009. Here's his son, Robert Poland. It was huge to him. We have this picture of him on the airplane going back with the trophy and big smile on his face. And Oh, yeah. And he, he wore his ring every single day the rest of his life. The Bullets made it to the finals again the next season, but this time they lost. In the years that followed, the Bullets went into a tailspin. Phil Chenier played on that 78 championship team, then became a broadcaster for the Bullets. We had some good players, some exciting players, and at the beginning of every year, we're looking at, okay, if this happens, if this guy plays, if this guy plays, if this happens, but overall, the team just wasn't being successful, and the frustration was getting bigger and bigger as you pushed on without being in the playoffs even, not without sniffing the playoffs. It was tough. The franchise won just a single playoff series in the 1980s and 90s. They were bad and totally irrelevant as Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls came to dominate the NBA. If you watch The Last Dance, you may remember one story about the Bullets. In March 1993, a young player named LeBradford Smith scored a career-high 37 points in a close loss to the Bulls. He scored a lot of those points while defended by Michael Jordan. Chenier was watching from a few feet away, and he kept his eyes on Smith after the game. He kind of made a, a beeline over towards where Jordan was, and you could kind of see this exchange, and it looked like he, you know, pat him on the butt or something to extend, saying, hey, nice game. It's unclear if LeBradford Smith actually said nice game, but this was going to be one of the tiny perceived slights that Michael Jordan used to motivate himself. A lesser player scoring on him and then having the gall to talk shit? Jordan wouldn't have that. Unfortunately for Smith, the Bullets and the Bulls played again the next night. Jordan backing LeBradford Smith. Michael takes it on the turnaround. Oh in the rematch, Jordan scored 36 points. In the first half, LeBradford Smith had been one of the Bullets' best prospects. He was out of the league a year later. By 1997, the Bullets finally had a promising young core, led by Jawan Howard and Chris Webber. That year, they made the playoffs for the first time in nine seasons. Their first-round opponent was not the opponent you want to face in the first round. 
And the Bulls have won and have eliminated the Washington Bullets in dramatic fashion. Michael Jordan scoring 14 in the fourth quarter. A few weeks after Jordan and the Bulls swept that series, the Washington franchise changed its name. Abe Poland said that bullets connote killing, violence, and death, and that a sports team should not be involved with that kind of a name. The new nickname, Wizards, won out over Sea Dogs, Express, Stallions, and Dragons. But changing names didn't change the team's fortunes. Neither did moving to a new arena, the MCI Center in downtown Washington, D.C. Poland's team needed something, or someone else. And the best basketball player in the world? He was looking for a new job. In November 1999, Michael Jordan stopped by the Chicago Bulls practice facility. A young Bulls player, Corey Benjamin, had been talking about challenging Jordan to a game of one-on-one. Jordan showed up that day to kick Corey Benjamin's ass, which he did, and he talked to reporters afterward. I never said I was going to stop playing. I still love getting basketball without a doubt, and, you know, but uh, it's still fun for me. Are your days fulfilling? Are you happy with uh, your life and what you're able to do? I'm going back and pick up my kids right now, so you know, it's just a little break until I can get back and pick them up. So, I mean, it's full enough. I got enough opportunities on my plate. I got enough challenge with golf. Here's Jack McCallum. He covered the NBA for Sports Illustrated. I mean, Michael was a spokesman, but you didn't have the sense that he was plotting the steps to become an executive. And I remember Larry Bird's comment, what do you want to do when you retire? I want to be the fattest man driving out of Boston. In other words, I'm just going to golf. That's what I saw for Michael. But Jordan was sincere about wanting to work in the NBA. And no place appealed to him quite like Chicago. Problem was, the team he'd led to six titles didn't want him around. The Bulls were shut off. I mean, when that thing ended, they were gone for whatever reason. The reason is actually pretty clear. After enduring years of criticism, and at times bullying from Jordan, the Bulls' front office was done with him. For the Bulls, Jordan's abrasiveness wasn't worth it if they were no longer contending for championships. Jordan was now a free agent. In 1999, he backed out of talks to buy a stake in the Charlotte Hornets. They reportedly wouldn't give him enough control. Jordan also met with Denver, Milwaukee, and Vancouver, all struggling franchises looking for a credibility boost. And then, another suitor emerged. To get Jordan, the Washington Wizards would have to give him total authority over basketball decision-making. That meant stripping those responsibilities from franchise legend Wes Unseld. Wizards owner Abe Poland agreed to that. Jordan would also get a stake in the franchise, making him one of just a handful of black NBA owners. Steve Weish was the Wizards' beat writer for the Washington Post. The league was really behind it. I mean, they really wanted to get Jordan back into the NBA. David Stern had a great relationship with Abe Poland, who was a wonderful man and who really wanted to win more than anything else. And he was willing to work with the league to make that happen. The Wizards were desperate. They traded away their young star, Chris Webber, and they'd started the 1999-2000 season by losing 28 of their first 40 games. Jordan seemed like their chance at redemption. In January 2000, the Washington Wizards introduced Jordan as the franchise's new president of basketball operations. In that press conference, he made it clear that he wasn't a miracle worker. 
As much as you guys may have given me the respect of being here and certainly the expectations that I've kind of set for myself because I used to shoot a basketball through a rim pretty decent, um, this team and my, my efforts to try to make this team a successful one, it's quite natural. It's going to take some time, but um, I look forward to the challenge. Michael Jordan came to Washington, D.C. in a suit, but there was always some speculation that he would trade it in for a uniform. Here's Rachel Nichols. Back then, she was a sports writer for the Washington Post. Certainly anyone who covered Michael in the late 90s didn't think when he walked off the court after that 98 season, that last dance season, that he was done as a player. Nobody thought, oh, man, he better retire. He's lost it. Nobody thought that. It wasn't, however, oh, Michael Jordan's just coming here undercover as an executive and he's really going to come play. It wasn't like that. It was more of just, "Mm, maybe, you never know. Jordan inherited players that weren't good enough to win on their own. And from his spot in the front office, there were only so many levers that Jordan could pull. After 10 days on the job, he fired first-year head coach Gar Hurd. When the Wizards' season was over, Jordan hired Leonard Hamilton from the University of Miami. And things only got worse. On December 6, 2000, the 4-14 Wizards blew a huge lead to the 5-14 Los Angeles Clippers. After the game, Jordan lost his shit. He stormed into the locker room and told the players they were a disgrace to the fans and had a loser's mentality. Jordan said he wanted to trade them away, but that no teams wanted them. The boss wasn't exactly leading by example. Jordan spent big chunks of time managing his personal business empire and playing golf. About 20 days each month, he'd be back home in Illinois, where he'd watch Wizards games alone in its basement. Mike Wise covered the NBA for the New York Times. His work ethic as a GM was suspect. He was often out of town. He wasn't the guy working the phones. He was still ahead of Michael Jordan, Inc. This became a moonlighting gig almost for Michael Jordan. The Wizards finished the year 19-63. and A month after the end of the regular season, Jordan earned his first meaningful victory in the front office. The franchise won the 2001 NBA Draft Lottery, giving them the first overall selection and a chance for rebirth. Afterward, Jordan spoke to reporters on a conference call from the 12th hole of a golf course. Aton Thomas came to Washington in the first big trade Michael Jordan ever made. A toe injury sidelined Thomas for the entire 2000-2001 season, which would have been his first in the NBA. So I came up to D.C. for like the last two games. It was about two games. I was like, ooh, Lord, this is terrible. Like, it was like, like I think (laughs) they were were booing from the stands, and it was like, you know, we was getting beat by a million, and I think we won like 19 games that year. So I'm talking to all the guys. They're like, yeah, you're going to have all the chances to play here because, as you see, It's bad. Thomas was working out at the Wizards' practice facility when a pair of highly touted prospects showed up. Both had just finished their senior seasons in high school. Their names were Tyson Chandler and Kwame Brown. And Kwame killed all of them. Like, it wasn't even close. If the Wizards had the top pick two years later, they could have taken LeBron James. But in 2001, there was no consensus about the best player available. Kwame Brown was an enticing gamble. Only 19 years old, Brown already looked like a grown man at 6 foot 11 inches and 245 pounds. By this point, a bunch of guys drafted out of high school had become huge stars. 
But none of them, not Kevin Garnett, not Kobe Bryant, had been taken with the number one overall pick. With the first pick in the 2001 NBA draft, the Washington Wizards select Kwame Brown from Lynn Academy, Brunswick, Georgia. On draft night, Brown was the center of attention for just a couple of minutes. Moments after the Wizards picked him, the TNT crew turned its attention to the Wizards team president. Well, we got you there, Michael. How are your ribs feeling, by the way? Uh, not bad. Not bad. Jordan had broken two ribs in a pickup game the week before the draft. The injury fueled speculation that Jordan was thinking of returning to the court. In March, Sports Illustrated columnist Rick Riley wrote that Jordan was 90% committed to making a comeback. Jordan denied the report, even as the workouts continued. Back at the draft, the TNT panel, featuring Jordan's friend Charles Barkley, pressed him about his plans. And we've tried to get some answers out of Charles here. Maybe you guys can share a special moment here. You and Mike can talk. Nobody will will reveal what you say. I'm just glad his little ribs are all right. He's been (laughs) whining about them for like two or three weeks now. (laughs) Don't worry about it, Charles. You you can forget I'm still the boss. If you need a job, I found you just one. Later that night, off camera, Barkley told a reporter, Michael wants to play. It was true. Jordan was working out hard, six days a week, up to six hours a day. Jordan, the executive, had ballooned to 240 pounds. He was now back down to his playing weight of 212. Here's Rachel Nichols. It turned eventually into the worst kept secret in the world because he was holding these workouts with current NBA players to sort of get himself back into shape and and gauge where he was. People knew that he was doing it. And you didn't know if he was going to pull the final step of it and actually do it. But we knew that he was looking to see if he could. Michael Leahy was on the Jordan beat for the Washington Post. He'd later publish a book on Jordan's time in D.C. called When Nothing Else Matters. Months before that 2001 draft, Jordan told Leahy that he'd never wanted to quit playing, that he'd left the Bulls only because his coach Phil Jackson had been forced out. Jordan fretted about his diminishing stature in the game about how Kobe Bryant and Vince Carter had replaced him as the faces of the league. It gets the competitor in me going, he said. All the losses in Washington were also taking their toll. When he did show up to games in D.C., Jordan sat in a luxury box, and he'd look down at the faces of Wizards fans staring up at him. To him, those faces said, get on the court and fix this. Here's Jack McCallum of Sports Illustrated. 60% of it was wanting to get back there and 40% of it was I can be you know I can be better doing this I think Michael saw himself that Michael as an executive wasn't necessarily going to uh going to get it done good morning Air Jordan is taxiing for takeoff legendary basketball great Michael Jordan is getting ready to return to the game he loves today Tuesday September 11th 2001 Michael Jordan's comeback was everyone's top story on the morning of September 11th. That changed at 8.46 a.m. Eastern, when American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the World Trade Center. In the aftermath of the terrorist attacks, Jordan decided it wouldn't be appropriate to call a big news conference. Two weeks later, he released a statement through his management agency. I am returning as a player to the game I love. Jordan said that the Wizards, a team that had just gone 19-63, and would now be a playoff contender. 
A lot of people thought Jordan was making a big mistake. His friend Charles Barkley said there was nothing positive for Jordan to gain by coming back. Jordan responded at his first press conference as a Wizards player. I'm not walking into this scenario thinking I'm failing. You know, I'm walking in thinking I'm, I'm confident and I'm pretty sure I can make it work. Um, and if I sit here and listen to everyone else tell me that I can't do it, then obviously I wouldn't be here. His first game back was against the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden. A month and a half after 9-11, the attack still loomed over everything in American life. The 38-year-old Jordan, who'd signed a two-year contract with the Wizards with a $1 million starting salary, had pledged that entire amount to victims of terrorism. The day before the game, Jordan paid a visit to Ground Zero. On the court, the starting lineups were introduced alongside members of the military. From the United States Navy Aviation Storekeeper's second class, Sonia Gaddy. At guard from North Carolina, number 23, Michael Jordan. It was quite a buildup even by the standards of Michael Jordan and New York. The game didn't live up to any of it. Jordan missed his first shot, a pull-up jumper in transition. He made his second, a layup. His third was an air ball. In the final seconds, with a chance to tie the game, Jordan threw the ball away. But then Washington stole it back. Jordan, wearing his trademark number 23 on an unfamiliar dark blue jersey, had one last chance. Michael Jordan! With Whitney's have the hot hand. Wizards down by three. Jordan for the tie. Rebound by Kirk Thomas. Built into the floor and a foul. Jordan's had some open looks. Five games into his first comeback in 1995, Jordan had scored 55 points against the Knicks in Madison Square Garden, his famous double nickel. On this night, he finished with 19 on 7-for-21 shooting in a Wizards loss. Three weeks later, Jordan shot 8-for-26 in another defeat. That dropped the Wizards' record to 2-9. and nine. Worst of all, Jordan's body was breaking down. Let's take a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. 
we became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. In the Wizards training room, Aton Thomas saw what Jordan put himself through to get on the floor. He wouldn't have to get his knee drained. And it was like the grossest thing that I've ever seen. Like his knee would swell up like the elephant, man. And then they would come in with this long needle and drain it. And there would be like this black tar goo stuff that would come out. It was disgusting. And so I don't even know if he was supposed to even be playing for some of those times. I remember one time we're sitting in the locker room and I looked over to him. I asked him, I was like, why are you even doing this? Like, honestly, I was like, you don't have anything to prove you're MJ. He didn't really answer. But I was serious. I was like, what are you even playing for? That's the part that people didn't see. The incredible thing was, a physically compromised Michael Jordan was still Michael Jordan. Here's Steve Weish of the Washington Post. He had some moments. I mean, he had some, I mean, more than moments where he really, he really played like MJ. One of those moments came on December 29th, 2001. Jordan went to that game against the Charlotte Hornets, having scored a career-low six points two nights earlier. This would be a better night. Jordan for his first shot of the game, and he already has a third of what he got Thursday. Jordan for his second straight shot, and his second straight that hits nothing but the bottom of the net. Beautiful move by Jordan. How about this? He scored 24 points in the first quarter. He had 34 by halftime. And at the end of the night, Jordan was flirting with history. Jordan, 51 for Michael. I think that's what they were going for, and I think he'll probably come out of the game now. And 100 for Washington. Jordan was the oldest player to ever score 50 points in a game. Afterwards, he said, I wanted to make a statement offensively. Jordan was recovering from preseason injuries to his ribs and knee and recapturing his old magic. Two nights later against New Jersey, he put up 45 in another Wizards victory lifting their record to 16-14. and 14. A month after that, the Wizards trailed the Cavs by one point with 1.6 seconds left. Everyone knew who was getting the ball. Jones the trigger. Jordan for the win. Got it! At the buzzer! He's done it again in the city of Cleveland! Jordan's young teammates mobbed him. Everything was working, and everyone was happy. All across America, Michael Jordan was king. Aton Thomas saw it firsthand. You know those old videos where you see, like, where MJ is, like, talking about Michael Jackson, where he's, like, going over overseas and stuff like that, and you see big crowds there, and they're all just yelling and screaming his name and, like, trying to touch his arm and stuff like that? Or they, like, you know, they touch him and they pass out. You know what I mean? Something like that happens. I, that's how it was with MJ, with Michael Jordan. That was the craziest thing. And I, and I know by myself, I was like, man, is this... Is this what the NBA is like? You know what I'm saying? Is this the kind of love? They're like, no, they're here for not for not for us. Brendan Haywood was another young player on that Wizards team. All our games were on TV. Like other players were coming into the locker room trying to get shoes signed. It was cr- it was crazy to see like your opponent walk over there like, hey man, can you sign the shoe? And it's not for his son, it's for him. One of my boys was sitting in the stands. I think the craziest story he told me was. There was a dad and a son that was sitting behind him, and Mike wasn't playing well that night. He's like, Daddy, Jordan ain't got it no more. He said, 
he said the dad looked at his son and said, son, don't ever say that about Michael Jordan. That's un-American. In late 2001 and early 2002, Michael Jordan was still one of the best basketball players in the world. Heading into the All-Star break, Jordan and Kobe Bryant were the only guys in the league averaging more than 25 points, five rebounds, and five assists. The Wizards were 26 and 21 and led the league in home attendance. Mike Wise of the New York Times had been skeptical of Jordan's latest comeback, but now he thought Jordan was an MVP candidate. Wise wrote in January that Jordan had done the improbable again. He got his teammates, the once woeful Wizards, to believe in themselves. I forgot that I wrote that. I guess there was a real sense of excitement. Abe Poland, you know, his business plan is paying off. But Michael Jordan is getting his end of the bargain. He's getting to scratch that itch again. And he worked really hard to come back. And I do think there was a belief early on. It wouldn't last. The good times ended against Sacramento in the final game before All-Star Weekend. After hitting a jumper in the second quarter, Jordan banged into Aton Thomas. Jordan dropped to the court, grabbing at his right knee. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I know that I know that this did not happen. And it was weird because it's not like we hit that hard. It was just where it hit his knee. Jordan shook it off and led the Wizards to their fifth straight win. But the toll of that collision and the grind of the NBA schedule showed up three days later at the All-Star Game in Philadelphia. Jordan was only a week away from turning 39. When he went up for a breakaway dunk in the first quarter, he looked a decade older. Two weeks later, in a loss at Miami, Jordan's knee was so sore that he couldn't play most of the fourth quarter. After the game, he told reporters, My mind is still consistent, but my body isn't. That admission was a huge deal. The legend of Michael Jordan had been built around his indestructibility, that he won no matter what. Jordan was finally bowing to the obvious. His knee wouldn't get better if he kept playing on it. He had torn cartilage, an injury likely exacerbated by his refusal to give the knee a rest. His competitiveness had made him vulnerable. Jordan had surgery on February 27, 2002. Jahidi White, who played center for the Wizards, saw everything they'd built that year start to slip away. Less than halfway through the season, we started gelling. We were definitely in the playoffs. Like Mike said, you know, when the playoffs come, Anybody can win, and I'm going to be a different person. He, he said that. And then Mike went down and got hurt. Three weeks after Jordan had surgery, he tried to give it another go. He averaged a little more than 12 points in the next seven games. On April 2nd, he scored just two in a loss to his old coach Phil Jackson's Los Angeles Lakers. For Jordan, that was it. He was done for the season. So were the Wizards. They'd finish the year 37-45 and 45 and out of the playoffs. Jordan could have ended his comeback here. He'd shown that he could still play before his body betrayed him. Stopping would have been reasonable. But Michael Jordan didn't become Michael Jordan by being reasonable. The Wizards coach, Doug Collins, said that the greatest player of all time wasn't ready to quit. What he said to me was he's going to shut it down, let the thing heal, get the inflammation out of there. And um, whether that's six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it might be, and he's doing it with the idea that he wants to, uh, to play next year. Michael Jordan had always been a winner, and he expected his teammates to be winners too. 
Jordan demanded excellence, and he didn't make those demands politely. Here's Rachel Nichols. Michael Jordan did not have mercy for anyone when he was a player and or even as an executive, and that included guys that he possibly should have been trying to nurture more. But that's just not who Michael Jordan is. In the fall of 1995, he punched his Bulls teammate Steve Kerr in the face during a team scrimmage. In 1997 and 98, he tormented another Bulls teammate, Scott Burrell, calling him a dumbass, a bitch, and a hoe. In the last dance, Jordan argued that he was toughening these guys up so that they'd come through when it mattered. And the Bulls did come through. You can't argue with six championships, right? But maybe it didn't have to be that way. Those Bulls teams had a lot going for them. They had Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, and then Dennis Rodman, plus Phil Jackson as the head coach. It's hard to imagine that Jordan calling Scott Burrell a hoe is what put them over the top. The truth is, some guys would have been better off if they'd never met Jordan. Dennis Hobson wasn't featured in The Last Dance, but he played for the Bulls in the early 90s. One of their teammates said that Jordan's abuse ruined Hobson, that it broke him down mentally. The Bulls traded Hobson in 1991. He was out of the NBA in 1992. The Wizards players I talked to said that Jordan was a little easier on his teammates in Washington. Here's Jahidi White. He didn't have to do that as much. And I think, you know, he was more older, Mike, and he kind of probably could understand that some, sometimes he probably could take a different perspective or a different route in trying to do it. So, you know, the only person he really was tough with was Kwame. In his first NBA season, Kwame Brown averaged four and a half points and three and a half rebounds in 14 minutes a game. Those were the worst numbers for a number one draft pick in nearly 30 years. Michael Jordan, the executive, had drafted the 19-year-old Brown straight out of high school. And when Brown struggled early on, Jordan, the player, lashed out. It was a tough relationship. I don't think that you can say that Kwame would have been a superstar if he had been somewhere else. But it certainly was a lot harder because he started under that spotlight. And he was never able to do everything Michael wanted him to do. And it caused a lot of friction. Like Kwame Brown, Brendan Haywood was a Wizards rookie in 2001. Unlike Brown, Haywood had spent four years in college, where he started at the University of North Carolina. He's trying to learn all that stuff on the fly. But more importantly, no one ever identified that, man, this is an immature kid right now that's trying to fit into a grown man's world. And Mike didn't either, but, you know, he's Mike. He's the greatest player of all time. He's won championships. He expects a certain level. He had never played with a high school guy before. So he didn't understand we had to dumb it down for him or we needed to talk to him a certain way. After Jordan's first season as a Wizards player, Michael Leahy wrote in the Washington Post that Jordan had been patient with Brown for a week. Jordan thought the rookie didn't work hard enough. And then, one day in practice, Brown complained that he'd been fouled. According to Leahy, Jordan exploded when he heard that, and he called his teammate a homophobic slur. At the time, Kwame Brown didn't confirm or deny that account. All he said was, it was pretty rough, but that's Michael Jordan. More recently, Brown has denied that Jordan ever called him a slur. He said it was just gossip to sell more papers or magazines. I don't know what Michael Jordan said to Kwame Brown in practice that day. Leahy declined an interview, but he told me that he stands by his reporting. Jordan and Brown both turned down my interview request. Head coach Doug Collins didn't want to talk either. Steve Weish, the Wizards beat writer, told me he didn't hear it. 
Jahidi White said the same thing. There is one thing I can say with certainty. Kwame Brown was desperate for a kind of affirmation that Michael Jordan would not give him. Brendan Haywood again. I don't think Mike realized that Kwame, you're not a teammate to him. You're Michael Jordan. He looks up to you. So when you yell at Kwame, you take off his confidence. When you talk down to Kwame, he feels like he's nothing. Kwame Brown wasn't the only one in the locker room who failed to connect with Jordan. Jordan was at least 15 years older than most of his Wizards teammates. Many had grown up idolizing him. Jordan didn't mind being worshipped, but he preferred the company of people his own age. His closest friend on the roster was 39-year-old Charles Oakley, a former Bulls teammate who the Wizards brought over in 2002. And given his extraordinary fame, Jordan was also understandably guarded around newcomers. Aside from Oakley, he mostly hung out with his bodyguards, his longtime trainer, and a few other close acquaintances. That was no great loss to the younger players. We were just kind of like into different things, man. Like Mike liked to smoke cigars and, and, drink, and, and, and drink his little wine and play cards and gamble all night long. Man, with the money that was on the table, man, I couldn't gamble with them dudes. I'm a rookie. Like, I'd be broke. Like, I, could, I, couldn't make it a, I couldn't even make it a West Coast trip trying to gamble with them dudes. So like they're gambling. I'm playing video games. Even when we do go out, the club I'm going to, Mike ain't trying to go there most times, you know? He's not trying to go to that type of spot. The Wizards didn't need to get along off the court to get in sync on the court. But the on-court thing, that wasn't working either. Michael Jordan would be back in a Wizards uniform in the fall of 2002. His most talented teammate wouldn't be. The Wizards had two guys who averaged 20 points a game in the 2001-2002 season. Michael Jordan, and a 24-year-old shooting guard named Rip Hamilton. Hamilton was the Wizards' best young player, a building block that any smart franchise would want to keep around. But if the Wizards were going to win with Michael Jordan, they needed to do it immediately. He was too old and hobbled to wait on his teammates to develop. Just before Jordan's second season as a Wizards player, the team traded Hamilton for Jerry Stackhouse. Stackhouse had been compared to Jordan as a college star in North Carolina. In the NBA, he'd averaged 30 points a game in the 2000-2001 season. The 27-year-old small forward could take some of the scoring load off Jordan, but he wasn't going to defer to him. Brendan Haywood again. Mike's looking for the next Scottie Pippen to be with him. Stack's looking for Mike to pass the torch. Obviously, there was a mix-up in communication. So, those, so they, like, they had almost like a weird like rivalry relationship on the team. So the team was weird that year. It was weird. They never had words, but it was an uneasy tension. The Jordan who made it back to the court in 2002 needed help. Age and injuries had clearly slowed him down, even compared to the MJ of 2001. And yet, Jordan wasn't willing to play a supporting role. Here's Jack McCallum of Sports Illustrated. He can't come back to a team and suddenly become a guy that's going to set picks and facilitate every. It's just not going to happen. How's Jerry Stackhouse going to be Jerry Stackhouse with Michael out there? Nobody was a better scorer than Michael Jordan. But before Phil Jackson took over as the Bulls' head coach in 1989, the knock on Jordan was that he was too much of a ball hog to win a title. Jackson's greatest accomplishment was convincing Jordan that even the best player in the world couldn't win on his own. Michael Jordan could be trusting under the right circumstances, but he always believed in himself more than he believed in anyone else. 
In their 2002 season opener against the Toronto Raptors, the Wizards shot 30% and scored just 68 points. After the game, Stackhouse said they were out of sync. Jordan said it was pretty ugly. When Jordan missed a breakaway dunk, the crowd in Toronto laughed. The plan for the season had been for Jordan to come off the bench to save his energy and prevent another injury. Jordan and the Wizards quickly scrapped that idea. In January, he played 53 minutes in a double overtime win over the Pacers, finishing with 41 points and 12 rebounds. After the game, Jordan wondered if it was the start of something big. We really needed this one. I mean, we've been playing well, you know, for the last month or so, and we just had little stretches where we really couldn't put it together. For the last three games, I think we've been putting it together. But Jordan only had so much left to give, and it showed later that month in another game against Toronto. The Raptors came to Washington having lost 12 of 13 games, and they had the NBA minimum of eight players on their roster. One of them was 23-year-old Damone Brown. He'd just been called up from the minor league North Charleston Logators. You know, as time went on, I had a couple of possessions where I switched out on them or I ended up on them and I did pretty good. That's Brown. At halftime, the Raptors coach Lenny Wilkins told the six foot nine forward he'd be guarding Jordan in the second half. I'm not going to go out there and, and go like uh, anybody and call, call myself a Jordan stopper or a Kobe stopper or anything like that. I think I just got, I, I got lucky on that day and, you know, was able to do my part of contesting and making a difficult call. Brown is being humble, but this was the best night of his NBA career. He had 13 points, the most he'd ever score in the league. Jordan finished with 22, but it took him 23 shots to get there. The Raptors won. 84 to 75. Michael Jordan had built his career and reputation by embarrassing guys like Damone Brown. But now, it was Jordan who was getting embarrassed. The Wizards were 19 and 19 and going nowhere. For Jordan, the rest of the season would be a glorified retirement tour. At halftime of the 2003 All-Star Game in Atlanta, Mariah Carey serenaded Jordan. Carey wore Jordan's Wizards jersey as a dress. And at the end of her medley, she brought him out to midcourt. From North Carolina, Chicago, Washington, Akbar, 6'6", six, six, Michael Jordan! Jordan had tears in his eyes as he approached Carrie and hugged her. The original crying Jordan moment. After a minute and a half standing ovation, Jordan addressed the crowd. I have passed on the things that Dr. J, some of the great players, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, has passed on to me. I pass on to these all-stars here, as well as the rest of the players in the NBA. I thank, for you, I thank you for your support. Now I can go home and feel at peace with the game of basketball. Thank you, brother. It was a poignant moment. A fading hero graciously stepping aside for the next generation of NBA stars. But the truth was, Jordan had been totally gracious. Jordan had finished behind Vince Carter, Allen Iverson, and Tracy McGrady in the All-Star voting. That meant, for the first time in Jordan's career, he was on the team as a reserve. But Carter had been pressured to give up his starting spot so that Jordan could hold on to the spotlight. This crowd wants so badly for Michael to hit that first shot. He's 0 for 3. Here's Jordan. Jordan again. 
And Michael 0 for 5 here at the start. Jordan would start the game 0 for 7. He'd end up 9 for 27 from the field. But in overtime, he got the chance for one last storybook finish. The fadeaway. That should have been it. But Kobe Bryant got fouled and tied the game with two free throws. Jordan got one more chance to win it, but this time Sean Marion swatted away his shot. Jordan, clearly winded, set out the entire second overtime. A week after the All-Star game, Jordan celebrated his 40th birthday at the Ritz-Carlton in Washington, D.C. Charles Barkley was there. So were Jay-Z, Beyonce, and Donald Trump, who brought along his model girlfriend, Melania. Trump told the Washington Post that Jordan's wife, Juanita, did a wonderful job with the party, and there was just great affection for Michael. Six nights later, against the New Jersey Nets, Jordan made history for the final time. Another free throw for Jordan. There it is, the big 4-0. The first time that a 40-year-old has scored 40 or more points in an NBA game. It's incredible. Jordan scored the go-ahead basket with 34 seconds left, lifting the Wizards to the win. But nobody in Washington was feeling optimistic. Jordan and Stackhouse never resolved their chemistry issues, and Kwame Brown wasn't developing at all. Here's Mike Wise again. The most damning thing I remember hearing, and God rest his soul, I can give up his anonymity now, Wes Unseld told me this. Wes Unseld, who died this June at the age of 74, was the most beloved figure in franchise history. He'd been with the team since 1968, as a player and then an executive. And he'd accepted a lesser role in the front office when Jordan came to Washington. He said, Michael has been great for many of us in this organization in ways that has raised the uh, value of the franchise has made us respectable in other ways. And yet, he's poisoned the locker room. And I go, well, how do you know that? How do I know that? And he goes, I just went around and asked every player if they would chip in for a retirement gift for him, give him something nice. All of them turned their backs on me. And I said, every player, and he goes, unanimous. It's no wonder that Jordan's teammates weren't sad to see him go. As Washington season slipped away, Jordan took the belittling the younger Wizards. After he scored 39 points in a loss to the Knicks, he said, It's very disappointing when a 40-year-old man has more desire than 25, 26, 23-year-old people. After a blowout defeat in Phoenix, Jordan said, I'm not going to try to save this team. It's not my job. This was the petty cruelty of his Chicago years, but without the victories that made it come off as motivational. Michael Leahy of the Washington Post asked Jordan if publicly blasting his teammates might hurt their morale. Jordan's response? The truth hurts. Michael Jordan's last home game on April 14, 2003, was a total non-event. Although it was officially a sellout, there were empty seats scattered throughout the MCI Center. The only bit of spectacle came before tip-off when Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld gave Jordan an American flag. That flag had flown over the Pentagon on the first anniversary of the September 11th attacks. The game itself ended in another listless defeat for the Wizards. Jordan scored 21 points and didn't address the home crowd. 
Two nights later, in Philadelphia, Jordan got a better send-off. Sixers greats Dr. J and Moses Malone gave him a personalized golf cart. And late in the fourth quarter, with the Sixers leading by 20 and Jordan on the bench in warm-ups, the crowd demanded an encore. A whole building standing and cheering. Here it comes. It ain't over yet. Jordan re-entered the game with 2.35 left and hit two free throws, giving him 15 points for the night. And then he checked back out. There's the end of a legendary career. Jordan was 36 and 89 as the Wizards team president, and they were 74 and 90 during his two seasons as a player. The team never seriously contended for the playoffs. Jordan was no longer young enough to carry his teammates on the court, and he couldn't build a roster that gave him enough help. The Wizards had neither a strong foundation nor a bright future, especially given that Kwame Brown looked like a bust. Jordan would not apologize for bruising his teammates' confidence, or even for picking the wrong players. He still thought he was the man to fix the Wizards, that he could fix everything that he'd never acknowledged screwing up. Friday, I'll send in my retirement papers whenever that I have to do that. And then from that point on, obviously, I want to move back upstairs. Here's Steve Weiss of the Washington Post. Everyone expected that when MJ's playing tenure was over, he was going to move back into the front office. The succession plan and ownership was already set in place. And within a day or two of Michael's final game, you really began to hear like Abe's going to let him go. I don't think MJ knew that, but you begin to hear, like, something is not right here. Something doesn't smell right here. Wizards owner Abe Poland was indeed wary of bringing Jordan back. He had alienated players in the locker room and failed to distinguish himself in the boardroom. Plus, Jordan had shown little interest in building a relationship with Poland, who was technically his boss. You could sense that Abe, like I said, it was a wonderful man. And so people felt disrespected. Because, you know, look, I'm not going to lie, Michael at times treated the organization like it didn't exist before him. It was also clear that Jordan had no particular loyalty to Poland or the Wizards. Jordan had hinted as much after his final game at the MCI Center. We have to have some discussion with management here and, you know, hopefully thing goes as smooth as I expect. And if not, then obviously I have other options. Jordan believed that he'd done a huge amount for the Wizards and that he'd sacrificed for the franchise giving up his ownership state when he resumed his playing career. Now, Jordan thought, he deserved to be rewarded. I raised your profile. Your arena sold out. The value of your team is two or three times greater than what it was when I came here. You should be grateful for that. You had just had two different perspectives and two different worlds trying to operate together, which, of course, ended very ugly. A. Poland fired Jordan on May 7, 2003. To the Wizards owner, it was the inevitable dissolution of a partnership that had run its course. Here's his son, Robert Poland, who's now an economist at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Michael felt like he had been promised something. And my father said, you never were promised uh, your job back. In fact, it would have been uh, against the league rules to have done that. So, yeah, Michael Jordan getting fired is not something that Michael Jordan was used to. So naturally, he was very bitter. In a statement, Jordan said that he was shocked by the decision and the callous refusal to offer me any justification to it. Jordan's teammates were shocked, too. It's a cold game. You know what I mean? That's all it is. Aton Thomas. 
they, you know, basically used MJ for two years to drive up all their revenues, change their entire franchise. And then they said, okay, you know, that, that's it. Thank you for your services. That was tough. And here's Brendan Haywood. I think that taught me more of a, a life lesson. No matter how big you get, big bank can take little bank, especially if you're black. You know, when you're 22, 23, 24 years old, you're not really thinking about nothing like that. And I'm just like, yo, that's how they treat Michael Jordan, man. That was Jordan's final L in Washington. The six-time NBA champion couldn't leave town fast enough. He went down to the MCI Center parking garage, got into his Mercedes convertible, put the top down, and drove away. Rachel Nichols. When he drove out of that parking lot, nobody was sorry to see each other have the door hit them on the way out. Three years after getting fired in Washington, Jordan bought a stake in the NBA Charlotte Bobcats. In the past 14 years, Jordan's team has lost 58% of their games and hasn't won a single playoff series. Robert Poland says that track record confirms that his father made the right decision. You look at what he's done in Charlotte. I mean, he is not a good team president or owner. He doesn't know how to build a champion that doesn't include him. It's just a fact. And the Wizards? Two years after Jordan got ousted, Washington finished 45-37 and and made the playoffs for the first time since 1997. The guy who led them there? Head coach Eddie Jordan. Whatever his shortcomings as an executive, Michael Jordan's legacy as a player wasn't diminished by his time in Washington. He'd already gotten his perfect ending, that sixth championship. But Jordan wanted a seventh title, and he was willing to risk his reputation to go for it. All he cared about was winning. That's what made him a great player, perhaps the greatest ever, and a very difficult person. I think sometimes fans watch athletes, and to them, they're just characters on a screen, and they want the story of the character to end a certain way. But the character's a real guy. And I think what he did in Washington showed, in some ways, the stretch of his greatness was even longer and wider and deeper than we thought. The idea that people who love Michael Jordan just want to forget it is actually always a little silly to me. One person who doesn't seem to agree with that take is Michael Jordan himself. When Jordan was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2009, he spoke for 22 minutes. He told the guy who'd beaten him out for a varsity spot in high school that their coach had made a huge mistake. He told his children that he was sorry that they'd had to live in his shadow. And he recalled telling a Bulls assistant that there's not an eye in team, but there's an eye in win. But Jordan didn't say a single word about his time with the Washington Wizards. To him, that wasn't a story worth retelling. This special episode of Hang Up and Listen was produced by me and Melissa Kaplan with editorial direction by Josh Levine. Sophie Summergrad is our assistant producer. Michael Leahy's book on Jordan's time with the Wizards is titled When Nothing Else Matters. Special thanks to Ryan Roberts and Slate's Megan Kalstrom, Chow Tu, Ben Mathis-Lilly, Stefan Fatsis, Katie Rayford, Allison Benedict, Gabriel Roth, Alicia Montgomery, June Thomas, and Jared Holt. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode and want to hear more, you're in luck. Later this week, Slate Plus members will get a bonus episode of Hang Up and Listen, 
where me, Josh Levine, and Stefan Fatsis dig deeper into the making of this podcast and what I've learned about Michael Jordan and his stint with the Washington Wizards. We couldn't make special shows like this one without the support of Slate Plus members. So please consider signing up if you are able to contribute. It's only $35 for the first year, and you get a free two-week trial. Go to slate.com slash hangupplus to find out more. Next week, we'll be back with our regular hangup and listen in this feed. Thanks for your support.